Salam and welcome to another episode of Network Reorient. Today we have in conversation with us Richard Bullitt, who will be speaking on world history and the Islamic age. Professor Richard Bush. Yes. Can you just tell us a little bit about your um, work um, for the, our audience? My work has fallen into a number of different uh, categories. Uh, when I started in uh, school, uh, in the track to becoming a scholar, my interest was in Arabic, Islam, uh, the Middle East, uh, and I pursued that. Uh, particularly in the area of social and economic history, but also uh, quantitative history, particularly developing quantitative tools for the study of conversion to Islam. Mm -hmm. But as time passed and got up to the 80s and the 90s, I found myself uh, becoming far more interested in broad questions of world history, partly arising from being a co-author of a world history textbook that... Uh, Fortunately, was fairly successful, but also because I found that the, the study of the Middle East uh, rarely uh, paid attention to other parts of the world, and seeing how it fit into uh, into the rest of world history uh, made the world history uh, that more relevant, that much more relevant to what I've been doing before. I, I shouldn't say the Middle East did not fit into world history. Ancient Middle East has always fit into world history. Yeah. It's only the Islamic period that somehow was carved out as a, uh, as a matter of irrelevance from a world history standpoint. <laughs> well, this is kind of interesting because uh, you mentioned your work on conversion and um, conversion to Islam and how... For, so it'd be useful to just sort of walk, talk through some of how you came to the insight of using names and registers to work out conversion and your kind of... Um, what that actually revealed to you about the spread of Islam? Yes, when I started to write my doctoral thesis, I had the idea of working on a city in northeastern Iran, the city of Nishapur, which was the second largest city of the Caliphate. And I quickly found that there were uh, three manuscripts that were biographical dictionaries of the scholars or the learned people who lived in Nishapur in the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries. And these were actually in possession of uh, Professor Richard Fry at Harvard, mm -hmm. who gave me access to them. Uh, one of them was actually his own handwritten copy of, a, of the manuscript. And no one had ever worked on these uh, in any detail. So I was faced with a methodological issue. What do you do when you have, say, 5,000 tiny biographical notices, many of them nothing more than the name, um, what do you do to generate um, something of historical uh, significance from those? And one of the places where that fascinated me for this was the nature of naming in the medieval Muslim world, that you have uh, not only different uh, types of names, uh, nicknames of or patronymics, things like that. But you also, for a very substantial proportion of the biographies, had a list of paternal uh, ancestors. Uh, when I... It was a complicated question of 
how to um, how to handle those, and I tried a number of different techniques. But one thing I discovered fairly early, early on was that initially there's almost nobody named Muhammad. Then you have almost everybody's named Muhammad, and then Muhammad goes back down again. You have sort of a, a mountain you climb, and then you're on the other side of the mountain. All of these are Arabic names in a country where the native language is Persian, but no Persian names, or almost no Persian names. And I, it occurred to me that that peak in the name Muhammad must mean something. And I thought it was related to the spread of Islam. Mm. But what I was finally uh, settled on methodologically was to look at the, at the genealogies. Because I discovered that Persian names, when they occurred, were almost always the first name in a genealogy. So I hypothesized that's probably the last non-Muslims. Mm. because he named his son, uh, gave him a, an Arabic name. And so when I took all of those genealogies and distributed them over a time axis, I got this magnificent uh, logistic curve that ties into a tremendous amount of, of scholarly literature on the spread, of, on the diffusion of information, the diffusion of new things. And it occurred to me that adopting a religion is really no different from adopting an iPod. Mm. I mean, somebody, you hear about it, you become convinced that it's something you want, you get it, and now you have it. Um, it simplifies the notion of religion a great deal, but, um, but it seemed to work uh, fairly well from a statistical point of view. And it seemed to show that the, the great wave of Islam spreading through the Middle East as a result of the Arab conquest, that that was a wave that took place over three centuries. Previous thinking about conversion had focused on one century. So effectively, I hypothesized a conversion process that shifted the timetable of Islamic history from the earliest century to um, to significant things in the third and fourth centuries. And even though scarcely anyone understood my methodology or liked it because it appeared to be so based on graphs and numbers that they didn't understand, nevertheless, everybody adopted the chronology. Yeah. Yeah. So it ended, it ended up having an effect on the, on the field. And I used that methodology uh, a few times in other situations, and a few people have adopted it. But it's very, it's a very, very specific type of. How consistent tool. have you found that? Because one of the arguments would be interesting to see that were there serious variations, for example, in the Iberian Peninsula versus in Iran uh, around yeah. the conversions, and what would be the factors around it? This was a problem because the only country where I had the change of language and the genealogy as a marker of the beginning of the conversion uh, for that family. The only country was Iran. Mm. So when I talked about other countries, it was a much um, shakier hypothesis because it was related to precisely the popularity of Muhammad yeah. rather than the genealogies. Um, but it appeared to be roughly um, to be roughly workable for other countries and for Spain if you 
took into account the fact that Spain was experienced the Islamic conquest um, almost 100 years later yeah. than, than parts of the Middle East. So that Iraq and Syria, or Iraq and Iran are the earliest, and then Syria and Egypt come along a bit later, um, Spain a little bit later, and Anatolia a little bit later. But in terms of the social context, um, that was harder to, to get at, and I didn't have a very good comparative basis of that. But I do think that today when we look at the history of Islam, we have not sufficiently recognized there, that there are two great periods of conversion. Now, one of them was in the 7th, 8th, 9th centuries. Yeah. Uh, that's when I hypothesized about. The second one is from the, is the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, um, when what I call the Muslim South yeah. converted Below to the Islam. 20, uh, 20 degrees. Uh, you know, beneath the latitude of Medina. Latitude, yeah. Medina. Yeah. So basically West Africa, East Africa, not everywhere. Yeah. Yemen and Oman yeah. obviously yeah. earlier. Yeah. Uh, most of India, Bangladesh, yeah. Southeast Asia. Yeah. All those are over half the people in the world who are Muslims today are the descendants of people who converted after the caliphate was long yeah. forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and convert. But the difference is that when Islam first spread, nobody knew what Islam was going to be. Yeah. How was it going to sure. develop institutions and social contexts and so forth? By the time you get to the second big wave of conversion, Islam is not simply a... Uh, uh, consists of religious tenets, but also consists of a fairly uh, well-developed institutional structure, mm -hmm. so that the the relations between Islam in Indonesia or um, uh, Mali or uh, you know uh, Bangladesh um, are going to be affected by the fact that Islam is already a developed faith as opposed mm -hmm. to being. A, a virgin faith. Yeah, yeah. So there's a great deal of work to be done on later conversion. Well, can I just ask, look you back on what you said, both in your introductory question and also in relation to what work you did um, in conversion, and maybe say something about the state of Islamic studies or Islamic history, kind of, um, and how you found that what you were doing and your kind of, let's say, more materialist approach, how did that sit in? And how do you think that the, that the discipline has developed over this time? Yeah, I actually think there's very little Islamic history. There's a lot of Islamic studies. Right. But history has not developed very uh, robustly in, uh, in the Muslim world. And ever since 9-11, it's declined even further because now people are only interested in, uh, in evaluating Islam yeah. in some sense. The one summer... I had finished my PhD and I was back home in Illinois and it occurred to me that I did not, could not think of the Arabic word for wheel and I finally realized it was ajla. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought, well, why didn't I know that? Yeah. Surely something as important as the wheel, I should have run across it in texts over the previous seven years of studying yeah. Arabic. Yeah. And um, then it occurred to me, well, Either I'm an idiot, or there weren't many wheels. And so I decided to explore the, that topic and discovered uh, that the wheeled transportation of the ancient 
Near Eastern world, ox carts and chariots, seems to have all but disappeared by the time of the rise of Islam. And the replacement was, to a large degree, camel caravans. So I wrote a book called The Camel and the Wheel, mm -hmm. which was an effort to reconstruct largely the history of camel domestication and how it relates to Islam and to other aspects of the economy of the uh, late antiquity. And that book was very well received outside the Middle East field. Uh, in the Middle East field, it was thought to be a good book, but a curio. It didn't go anywhere. It just simply said, here's what it was. Um, I subsequently, just a few years ago, wrote a book on the history of the wheel. That's sort of the complement, the camel and the wheel. And in between, I wrote a book called Hunters, Herders, and Hamburgers, mm -hmm. which is a book on, on animal domestication. So those three together really carved out a an area of material history focused on transportation and uh, energy sources, particularly the use of animal energy, and I've also talked about windmills and things like that. Um, that the, the conversion book was um, sort of shunned by people who didn't want to read about graphs and, and charts. The books on material history have gone pretty much unread in the Middle East field because material history is, um, is largely undeveloped. And I, I can understand why, because when I started out in the field, I was at Harvard as an undergraduate, and I started Arabic in my intensive Arabic in my junior year in college. And the great man at Harvard at that time was Sir Hamilton Gibb, uh, who was a uh, marvelous lecturer and a splendid Arabist, not much of a historian. Um, but it was very clear that the field consisted of reading classical texts. In my seven years of taking Arabic, nobody ever asked me to compose a sentence or to listen to a sentence and understand it. It was all reading, uh, reading classical texts and understanding. And I was so-so. I, was I wasn't really awfully good at it, but I was okay. But that was the field. That's what Orientalism was. And despite the, the, uh, the sort of aspersions cast on Orientalism by Edward Said and his admirers, um, that still seems to be the orientation of the field, is that you, you read a text that hasn't previously been done to death, and you, you may edit it, you may translate it, but more likely you simply summarize it and say, here are my findings. Here is a book on piety in Egypt in the 13th century. Or here's a book on Sufism in, uh, in Afghanistan in the 12th century. But, um, but work that is not fundamentally related to texts in local languages has been uh, few and far between. I mean, there were a couple of people in the last generation Eliha Ashtor and Claude Cayenne, who did a sort of thing that interests me. But, um, and quite recently, there are some people interested in climate history uh, and um, uh, you know, irrigation history, uh, some of them my own students. But by and large, material history has been uh, skipped over, or rather has not yet had an impact, because you don't get a job in the field unless you have a solid knowledge of one or more of the area languages. 
which you don't need to have to do climate history, mm -hmm. or you don't need to have to do irrigation history, but you have to have it to get a job in Middle Eastern history. So it's still a language-focused field and um, has fallen behind other areas of world history, which have been much more receptive to the idea of material, uh, material culture and um, things like uh, climate and ecology as crucial variables in world history. Well, you mentioned earlier on that um, some of the insights have been taken up by, for example, ancient historians, which you would think would have less textual, um, you know, uh, they're more difficult to study simply because of the challenges of ancient history, etc. Um, it's been taken on very various different areas. So in a way that the idea of the specificity and the, of Islamic history is being so kind of distinct from everything else and so kind of enclosed is not just simply in terms of subject area, but it seems to be also has its own methodological propositions, which doesn't seem to allow for sustained conversations across, well, yeah. fields and... Uh, uh, that, that, that fields. It, it was a problem. There was certainly a time, say, 100 years ago, when the history of Europe was thought of as a counterpoint to the history of the Middle East. Um, go back to, you know, Gibbon and, you know, the, the, the threat of uh, Islam to European civilization and everything. Now, in the last 20 years, the... The comparison with European history is almost all, all with China, uh, and lesser, but to some degree, with India. And nobody makes a comparison with the Middle East in, in broad world, world historical terms because the, the uh, shape of Middle Eastern historical study is so narrow compared with the, uh, the, the issues that are uh, galvanizing historians these other fields. And there are reasons for it, but I think paramount is the Orientalist um, fixation on the text, uh, and particularly on expository texts, or, or uh, like theology, philosophy, law, uh, literature, and so forth, even though there are many texts that could be used quantitatively if one were so inclined. But beyond that, you also have a A disconnect between uh, Islamic art and architecture and archaeology and the historical Islamic studies field. You've had marvelous things done in Islamic art, but they're put in art in art history departments. But for the ancient Near East, the art and the archaeology have been integral to the whole concept of the um, of the thing and. Uh, and so when you look at, say, the, the Chicago Akkadian Dictionary yeah. that, uh, uh, that was compiled over many, many years, people like A. Leo Oppenheim were very interested in, well, what is the Akkadian, the Akkadian word for this or that? And material objects were all considered as important yes. as concepts when you were trying to decipher Sumerian or Akkadian or... Uh, or hieroglyphics, but um, but in the uh, like, and you all and you had so much excavation, so you had the actual material finds that you could compare it with. Uh, we've not really sufficiently integrated the material history that we do have, or the material findings and theorizing that we do have, with the 
with the broader history. There have been a few people who, who've, I think, done a good job in that, like Oleg Grabar, the late Oleg Grabar, mm-hmm. um, uh, Richard Eddinghausen. But by and large, the, the textual focus, I think it's difficult for people who are just general uh, readers of history to realize the enormous quantity of texts in Arabic script in the world today. Mm. There, there are millions of manuscripts. But what people do know about it is the kind of usual kind of neocon soundbite that comes out there, that there are less translations in the entire Muslim world than there were done in Spain and things like that, without putting that into particular kinds of context. So one of the things that you were talking about earlier uh, with the conversation is um, Rumi's poetry, writing in Farsi mm-hmm. in Konya. And, you know, you raised a question there. Well, how yeah. do we understand the social context of this? Who's he writing? And, and, and this is something that has not been addressed. If you talk to, to a specialist on Rumi, they say, well, he was writing for the local... You can tell the, in the sort of vernacular sound of his poetry and everything that he's writing for the local population. But Konya is in the western part of the central Anatolian plain. It's a long way from Iran. And everyone seems to agree that if um, Rumi's writing in the, 11th, in the 13th century, that in the 11th century, there was no Persian spoken in Konya. So you've had the language goes from zero to being popularly understood by a large number of listeners in a course of, say, 200 years. That's very fast for language change, particularly when we have no explanation for it, because the uh, the people who came to rule uh, admired the Turkish language for literature, but actually spoke Turkish. And um, there's almost no way to explain this. The you know Rumi or um, uh, parallel poets in in northern India mm-hmm. writing popular works in Persian without assuming that a lot of Iranians moved there. So when you look at ancient history with the famous Persian dynasties of the Achaemenids or the Parthians or the Sassanids, they ruled huge areas, but they did not export their language um, at all. What does that tell you about their rule then? That it probably was like a um, a little bit like how people are trying to rule Afghanistan today, that you had local um, manifestations of power, and the rulers sort of negotiated a, um, uh, a relationship that recognized their, their sovereignty, um, but they did not implant. Um, sometimes we do know of transplanted populations, but not in particular from Iran. I don't think Iran was a heavily populated area in the, in, the, in, uh, in, the, in that period, I don't think there was a an abundance mm-hmm. of Persians to export. But starting in the um, early 12th, if not the late 11th century, there appears to to be a very substantial migration out of Iran into India and into Anatolia, bringing Persian uh, as a uh, commonplace language to both areas. Also into Central Asia, perhaps, but Central Asia already had lots of Persian speakers, so they're, easy, they're less easy to find. And a substantial number of, of Iranians show up in the Arab countries, particularly in religious positions, where, where Arabic 
that they knew as scholars was of, of value in the spread of the, the medrases that originated in Iran for teaching about Islam often had Persian professors. But for, uh, for common people, for artisans, um, or for refugees, uh, they went to Anatolia and India. And there is a question as to why this happened. I believe that there is a uh, documentable period of climate deterioration in the 11th and 12th centuries that uh, caused people to leave the country. Um, I haven't convinced everyone in the field that that is the case, and so it's up, still up for debate. But I think that also uh, is interesting that even though this coincides with the spread of the Seljuk dynasty of rulers, it's hard to see them as engineering this migration. There, there must have been um, sort of caravans of people leaving Iran, and particularly from the cities, because that's where the, because they seem to show up as artisans settled in cities uh, once they leave Iran. And one of the consequences is a hypothesis um, that I strongly believe in, that um, popular religion in Iran in the 11th and 12th century increasingly became rooted in local rural places of pilgrimage and in villages, but that the the most venerated people were not the highly literate Arabic-speaking uh, scholars of two centuries earlier, but were rather uh, members of the Prophet's family, the Sayyids, or they were Sufis. Uh, Iran became heavily devoted to Sufis and Sayyids as the people to be venerated. So that when the urban population left to go to Anatolia or India, that was largely Sunni. And they left behind a rural population that was increasingly Shiite. And that the growth of Shiism in Iran, I, I put down to the 12th, 13th centuries, <coughs> and to changes in the demography, rather than to the rise of the Safavid dynasty in 1500, where, it, where what was already, uh, I think, apparent in Iran, that Shiism was the dominant uh, orientation of the population came to be part of state rule and the Safavids become a Shiite dynasty. Do you think the impact of the uh, Mongol invasions or um, or Timur's kind of do you think that had a um, serious demographic effect or do you think it's been exaggerated in terms of the, the story that you're telling? It's it's been in the interest of Muslim historians and historians who are sympathetic with Islam to attribute everything bad to the Mongols uh, because they were bad bad guys yeah. and they did kill a lot of people no question about that but for a hundred years before the Mongols arrived and they arrived totally by fortuitous incidents yeah. far off some shots. Uh, uh, far off to the east yeah. um, you had had a a demographic decline, an economic decline, uh, may not entirely be climatically caused, but I think that was a major part of it. And I think that the the Mongols moved into a land that was largely depopulated. In the case of the city I know best, it's Nishapur, yeah. and it can be demonstrated uh, from on textual basis and an archaeological basis. 
that the city of Nishapur was huge. Um, and the ruins there, I've mapped those ruins and uh, studied them. And I can see what an enormous city it was. But that city was deserted before the Mongols arrived. And the surviving population, after a series of earthquakes, nomadic depredations, uh, economic decline, and internal fighting between religious factions, the remaining population withdrew from the city to a suburban area called Shadyach. And they built a new walled city there. And you can see the walls, they're still there. When the uh, historians talked about the Mongol invasion, they talked about Mongols destroyed Nishapur, which they did. But they destroyed a city that was already only 20% the size of what had been there 200 years earlier. Uh, Nishapur may be an extreme example, but I think that uh, the Mongols really did move into a, a largely deserted area, and they, their predecessors, the Khwarezm Shahs, mm -hmm. ruled over a very loose, uh, loosely held uh, territory. Um, so I think that uh, they have been rightly credited with a lot of destruction, but that a lot of destruction that occurred before they showed up on the scene has been ignored because that would imply some sort of something wrong with Islamic society, even if it ultimately was a climatic or an economic uh, issue rather than an ideological one. Well, thank you very much. I just want to ask you one more, two more questions if you've got time. Sure. There. Um, and just really to shift a little bit of focus and talk a little bit about world history as such. Mm -hmm. And um, to say something about, A, to what extent the um, ambition, and I know, for example, in Earth and its People, the world history that you um, co-wrote with six mm -hmm. other authors, try to tell a the high different world history as kind of responding to some extent away from historical narratives which are overly Eurocentric um, and also to try and basically give a literacy of what was happening everywhere in a sense there. And that poses a number of huge methodological um, challenges I guess in a way. And I just thought whether you had after writing that book and what you have reflections on how you think world history should develop, you think uh, well, how's it going as a field and mm -hmm. what changes you'd like to see in it and what things you think is good about it and what's yeah. negative about it. The, the development of world history in America as we currently see it arises in the 1980s from decisions made by state boards of education to require global literacy in the pre-college curricula. Uh, so we suddenly had thousands of school teachers told they were to teach world history. I would meet with a group of them and I'd say, how many of you took world history in college? Nobody raised their hand. It wasn't taught in, in colleges with the rare exception of a place like University of Hawaii. Um, why, the, uh, why there was this interest in global history isn't very clear. The word globalization became popular around 1983, and uh, the idea was that states wanted to be part of the economic globalization that was being talked about that, at that time. But it took a very long time for scholars at elite universities, elite history departments, to pay attention to world history. So the result was that the world history developed 
at it largely through textbooks because you had to help the teachers teach something they knew nothing about. And it developed very much at a, uh, at a sort of, let's say, a simplified level where you did not want to develop complex theories. You wanted to stick with uh, demonstrable uh, facts. Mm -hmm. um, my own textbook, <coughs> we had two themes. One of them was, uh, was environment and technology. Every society has an environment. Every society responds to the technology. And the other one is dominance and diversity. Because there's always dominance and there's always diversity. And they were sort of shibboleths, but they were useful in structuring chapters. But I, I always thought that common denominators abound in world history. Like every society has ideas about religion or dance or rhythm or beauty, et cetera, et cetera. But that most of them can't be encapsulated in a textbook, particularly if you're limited to the number of pictures you can have. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Technology and the environment and dominance diversity seem to be uh, satisfactory for that. But we still were, were oriented toward a regional focus that had come out of, to some degree, out of various studies, to some degree, out of uh, exercises in the 1980s, trying to think of model curricula and world history. And trans regional processes uh, were regarded as um, primarily trade uh, or migration. Trade and migration seem to cover it. Mm -hmm. But it seemed to me that there are, we now discovered that there are trans-regional um, processes that are uh, more, more complex, hard to understand, and yet uh, truly profound. And so I think that uh, what I think of as the first generation of good world history textbooks, I think that they kind of prematurely canonized certain stories, certain anecdotes, certain individuals as the key ones for understanding world history. And I think that needs to be, uh, needs to be rethought. Um, I mean, one thing that's interesting, for example, is in our own lifetimes, um, we've had a situation where if you saw a language written in Latin characters and you saw another language written in Cyrillic characters, immediately the Cold War was in your mind. Yeah. And the Cyrillic characters are the East and Latin characters are the West. And then Arabic characters are Islam. Um, what is the impact of of having a writing system that comes to have a tremendous ideological um, impact mm -hmm. on people. Because I think to this day, uh, seeing Arabic characters uh, immediately reads Islam versus the West. Yeah. And so Turkey, which adopts Latin characters, seems to be more Western yeah. than, um, than some other areas. Yeah. And, yeah, one of the reasons it adopts Latin is partly to appear Western, to, yes, to, to yeah. look like the West. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you had s certain efforts with Latin characters mm. in Soviet Central Asia yeah. uh, for the same reasons. So, but we, but I don't think we ever talked about alphabet. I mean, the, the Arabic alphabet, it, 
it's interesting that you know, in Islam, there's no cross. The crescent doesn't come in for hundreds of years later. The first emblematic um, signifi signifier of Islam is the al the alphabet, mm. not any particular word in the alphabet. Just the alphabet. The alphabet as a whole. Yeah. So the, yeah. the the coins yeah. became entirely alphabetic, and yet at that time, my guess is that fewer than two percent of the people could read. So the coins registered as Muslim coins in the hands of people who, if they could write, read, would read Arabic, but they didn't read. Yeah, so, so, so they're trying to reach there. And, and there are a whole bunch of other things that are um, that we've just missed yeah. uh, in the, the last generation of world history writing, and you know, we need to redo it. Well, I mean, I could talk to you forever, really, about these things there. Um, what is your, um, just to sort of conclude this um, conversation, what is the kind of project you're working on now? What are you just, um, what sort of two immediate, you two know, or three immediate things in your mind right now? Um, primitive accumulation in the thinking of Marx was uh, strong people stole from weak people. The thinking of Adam Smith, it was people of, with virtue and effort acquired money, and then they invested into, into capitalism. Uh, but capitalism, they thought of as the production of manufactured goods at a time when, in fact, the most important changes in capitalism were in the transportation sector, not in the production of goods, because this is the spread of canals and railroads. So that when Dow Jones thought of an index, um, their initial thought was an index of stock prices that were almost entirely made up of railroad stocks, because manufacturing was simple to comprehend. Mm -hmm. Transportation is much more difficult, and yet throughout history, comparing different modes of transport has probably been a more impactful um, or insightful type of study than comparing modes of production. In a mode of production, you can say, well, it's serfdom or capitalism or communism, thing. but modes of transport are more complex, and you also have intermodal contacts that are very interesting. So I'm getting very interested in the history of modes of, of, of transport and its relation to the history of modes of, of production and, and so on. And perhaps all ultimately centering on the question of, of a history of energy. Um, I think that it is absolutely fascinating that uh, the Western Hemisphere, the Aztecs, Mayans, the Incas, and so forth, their mode of energy was human manpower. And yet they built some of the most magnificent cities and uh, monuments in the world. Um, other areas it'll be uh, animal power. Um, other areas it will be today oil. Because we're really fixated now on the question of where does power, where do we go next in terms of the history of energy? And we haven't really understood the history of energy past. We're now focused on, on petroleum and carbon uh, economies. But there are other economies that we've, energy economies, that we uh, need to pay attention to. Thank you so much. It was, My really, pleasure. No, it was really lovely talking to you. And um, it's really been, um, yeah, it's great. And um, I look forward to uh, work coming there.
This has been Network Reorient. Thank you for tuning in. Please have a listen to some of our other episodes and leave a rating.